0: You're listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing questions. Attorney Bill Powers sits down with some of today's leading legal minds to discuss everything from legal issues and legislation to practice tips and policy. Now, here's your host, Bill Powers, former president of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice, recipient of the North Carolina State Bar John B. McMillan Distinguished Service Award, and a founding member of the Center for Legal Education and Advocacy.
1: All right, welcome to a episode of Law Talk with Bill Powers. I am your guest host for this episode, Rob Ingalls. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, today we're going to be talking about North Carolina DWI laws, and the science behind these laws has always been pretty complicated, and it's always continuing to develop and advance. Now, the device that many people refer to in drunk driving cases in North Carolina, the breathalyzer, hasn't actually been used for more than 20 years. Today, our court system relies on a host of different alcohol detection and measuring devices. Now, if you're on the side of the road, law enforcement is perhaps going to request a breath sample from you on what's called an FST or field sobriety test called the sensor or known as the sensor FST. So if you get arrested for driving while impaired, whether it's in Charlotte or Statesville, Monroe, Wilmington, really anywhere in North Carolina, you may be subject to something called an evidentiary breath test by the licensed chemical analyst, who might also be the officer who arrested you for the DWI. And that machine they use is called an ECIR-2. Now, your defense lawyer may recommend you wear an ankle bracelet or what's called a scram or cam device for continuous alcohol monitoring as well. And there are circumstances when the judge may order you to have something many people call a blow-and-go installed in their vehicle as part of a limited driving privilege. And then finally, there's going to be times when the NCDMV, the North Carolina Department of Transportation Division of Motor Vehicles, may require the installation of that blow-and-go or what lawyers tend to refer to as an ignition interlock device as a condition of restoration after a conviction for DWI or even if you had a willful refusal to blow. Now again, it is a technical and complicated area of the law in North Carolina. I feel like you could tell that just from listening to me riff for a few minutes there. Fortunately, I am joined by Mr. Bill Powers this morning. Good morning, Bill. Hello, hello. So, Bill, it's great to have you. I'll I'll tell you, it's um, it's fun to be back on the mic with you. But also, um, I've told you this before, but you know, you you've always been the go-to guy for this area of law. I remember when I was a, a baby lawyer, watching you try a case and realizing just how far out of my depth. <laughs> that I was with this stuff and it was really great to have someone like you as a resource around. Now like I said, you are, you know, the go-to guy when it comes to law, science, technology associated with driving under the influence, driving while impaired, DWI, DUI, drunk driving, whatever you want to call it in North Carolina. And you're dedicated to teaching lawyers, judges, prosecutors and even law enforcement about the North Carolina DWI laws. In fact, I know that you provide free of charge and have for years the North Carolina DWI quick reference guide, something I've used myself, and you've served on both Governor Cooper and Governor McCrory's impaired driving task forces, and you know the value of listening and thoughtful dialogue. Now, you presently are serving on the Governor's impaired driving task force, where there are different interests from across the state, including the Conference of District Attorneys, Judges, Law Enforcement, NCDMV, Restaurant, and Beverage Representatives, the North Carolina School of Government, et cetera. those things. Now, I know they meet to review the DWI laws in North Carolina and make recommendations to the General Assembly and the governor about the DWI policies, any changes to the law, things like that. So, with all of that said, what's going on? Have there been any changes to the blow-and-go, that ignition interlock device in North Carolina?
2: Uh, Wow. Uh, Yes, actually, Rob, there have been a lot of changes, uh, more than I can recall Oh, at least in the last decade or so, if not more, um, specifically regarding what some people call the blow and go, lawyers call it the ignition interlock device, the IID, and um, uh, it, it's frankly about time. It's a, it's a piece of legislation that um, was introduced in the um, House and um, Senate, and they got together and put their heads together to try to make some, you know, really I think good changes to the status of the law. So. Yes, there's actually a new um, law out there, a new bill, uh, excuse me, a bill that passed in law, um, I wanna say mid-November, like uh, mid the 18th of November, somewhere around that time. Um, We call it Senate Bill 183. Um, There's actually some more complicated language in it. Um, Let me see, I actually have it printed out here. It says, an act to eliminate mandatory waiting periods for driver's license restoration for limited driving privilege. Privileges if the person is operating a motor vehicle that has a functioning ignition interlock system installed on it. And it goes on and on and on and on. It's a huge statute that touches um, a lot of different areas of law. So um, people in legislature, lawyers may refer to it as an omnibus bill because it touches a lot of different areas of law where interlock can and may be required.
1: Now, you served on the task force subcommittee, is that right?
2: Yes, yeah. It actually was the interlock subcommittee.
1: So, tell me a little bit about that process. What was your involvement? Uh, just what what are the takeaways from that process?
2: Um, actually, the overall takeaway was it was a really enriching experience getting to deal with some people who, uh, frankly, are just consummate professionals, um, and they're not people necessarily that uh, our positions are aligned. We have varying, different opinions, sometimes vociferous uh, differences of opinion, but. Um, you know, the, the people like Chris Brooks, who is with, um, the attorney general's office and, and the AG's office represents DMB on, on certain matters, um, have, uh, conference of district attorney, uh, members, those are prosecutors. Uh, you have the director of the governor's, um, highway safety program. Um, his name's Mark Gazelle, um, Shea Denning, she's with the school of government and, um, there are a bunch of other people, but those are the ones that most, you know, lawyers or practitioners may recognize, and um, it, it really was a, a an edifying process. Where Mark just kind of led the discussions, and we talked about different things. and And um, I think I listened more than anything. To be honest with you, I don't know how much help I was, but it was it was interesting to see that despite our varied opinions about things and perspectives, we were able to make some recommendations that everyone agreed to, um, as my as I recollect, uh, unanimously.
1: Well, that's great to hear because uh, I think anybody listening could probably uh, understand that we're not agreeing on a lot of things right now. So it's good to hear that everyone was able to come together and do something that was uh, a, kind of unanimously agreed on, but was also a very positive uh, move.
2: Right. And, and it's important to realize that a, a subcommittee of a task force, it's advisory in nature. It's, it's people who are dealing with the system and the different things in the law Regarding impaired driving on a day-to-day basis, and we, we just make recommendations. We have insights, uh, and then it's up to uh, the governor and the legislative branches, so the executive legislative branches, to, to decide what they want to pass. And um, we made recommendations, and um, from there, the legislature, you know, they it can go back and forth to committees, and and eventually they present a bill to governor to sign off on, and Governor Cooper signed off on it in mid-November. So it was. Uh, a lot of work, a lot of meetings, but I thought really touched um, some important areas uh, of that particular law and um, was, like I said, a, a, an edifying process. It was it was kind of reassuring to see. I've been in practice law now for a minute, and um, it was nice to see some common sense ideas come through.
1: So, it's an advisory committee. Did you feel like the major points that you, you and the committee brought to the table made it into the bill?
2: Yeah. Um, uh, yes, very much so. Um, Shay Denning, she's with the uh, school government, Institute of Government, and I apologize. I, I'm old school, so I still I don't know what the official name is, but um, she's actually a professor level and really, really went through with a fine-tooth comb um, the different aspects of the, in the ignition or lock device within the statute. An ignition interlock device can be used in a a wide, as you said, kind of an introduction in a lot of different areas. So it may be something that's mandated by uh, the court. Uh, It may be something that the, the legislature says you have to do it in these circumstances. It could be a condition of restoration through the North Carolina Department of Transportation Division of Motor Vehicles. So I call that the NCDOT DMV. And each one of those agencies has their own kind of way of doing things. And so... You may need it to touch this statute, and it may need to touch this statute, and it may need to touch this statute. And, and they had very little to do with this. These are people who are um, really, really, really good at this. I, I mean, I'm, I was you know, more of a big picture kind of guy from a procedural standpoint, a policy standpoint. And they really effectuated and, and drafted up some very, very specific language that was a go-by, if you will, and I thought that they did an excellent job, and it did make it to the legislature. There changes, as is the case of any form of legislation. But um, in large measure, it was I'd say it was relied upon um, extensively for the law that is now in place.
1: Nice. Well done. So that, that's a good segue into my next question that I want to talk about, is what are some of those big-picture changes? I know that this is a big law. Like you said, it's very granular. There's a lot of specific language. But what are some of those big picture changes
2: right and that's a that's a great question because um and and I'm assuming that most people are listening to this pod, particular podcast are probably attorneys or or people that work in the field, and so you'll have some level of familiarity but i'll I'll try to keep it um, relatively big picture and there are about five or six different areas, actually more, but um, we could sit here and talk all day about the individual nuances but the five or six big pictures item in uh, bullet points are, first, the new ignition interlock uh, law uh, gets rid of the previously mandated 45-day hold. I call it a hard suspension. Second, it eliminated some of the time and hour restrictions that may have previously applied, and I put a little asterisk next to that because some are in effect, some are not. There's a timing aspect of things uh, as the bill gradually becomes um, or applied in North Carolina. Third, uh, the law to require when the IID is to be installed in a vehicle um, it has changed in that now you, you put it in your, your vehicle that you drive as opposed to any vehicle that you have or it has been registered in your name in the household. Fourth, um, it, it provides for some level of financial consideration and a reduction or, uh, of cost um, for the installation of the ignition or lot device if you meet certain financial Um, means um, requirements. Uh, Fifth, um, it revised uh, a BAC, um, blood alcohol concentration or breath alcohol concentration um, for what I'll call plus minus. It standardized the number and and, and changed it to a point oh two, which allowed a certain amount of, um, I guess I call it wiggle room for lack of a better term. And then six, which I think really encourages, and it recommended and requires a joint legislative oversight committee and they called it public safety and justice um, to look at the use of the ignition interlock device and whether or not it should be expanded and and in calls for um, continued evaluation and, and, and progress towards um, ultimately you know, being a fair law and, and applied in appropriate circumstances. So those are the big, the big ticket six and um, understanding that, <laughs> that they're all uh, relatively complicated. This is, this, is, this is an in-depth bill.
1: So, I know these are complicated and I don't want to drill down too far, but some, I had a couple questions that were sticking out on some of these. For the first one with that 45-day hold, you said that they're getting rid of that mandated 45-day hold. Is there a current hold now? How does that work?
2: Okay, that's a great question. And let me, let me preface it with a few, um, you know, caveats, warnings, you know, flashing yellow flags, things like that, and talk about the applicability. Okay, so first, the, when we're referring to the 45-day the hold, we're talking about if you're convicted of driving while impaired in North Carolina, and you're applying for what uh, a type of license, some people call it a hardship license or a paper license, what we're referring to is a limited driving privilege. The specific limited driving privilege is uh, a limited driving privilege subject to installation of an ignition interlock device. Okay. so. Right off the bat, people have heard of things like, well, pretrial limited privilege and limited privileges relating to speeding and a regular limited driver's license and willful refusal limited privilege. This is the privilege that would be issued if you were convicted, so post-conviction, and if you had a BAC, a, a blood or breath alcohol reading of a 0.15 or higher. So the court can issue the ability to drive. You know, you know normally when you're convicted, your license is suspended, but then they allow for subject to the limited privilege um, uh, ability for a person to drive. Now, with a 0.15 until this law had passed, from the day you were convicted in court, the clock started ticking and there was no type of license or privilege, hardship license, anything for a period of 45 days. So, that's why I call it hard suspension because it's, there's no exception to it. So, if you were convicted on you know, December 1st, you weren't gonna be able to apply for a willful or a limited driving privilege, um, both a 0.15 or higher uh, until mid-January. Under the new law um, for uh, convic- or applications, not necessarily convictions, but an application for privilege after de- December 1st, 2021, you can immediately apply for a limited driving privilege. Now you still have to have the other requirements such as um you know an alcohol assessment a dl123 from your insurance company and other uh, factors that are are normally associated with a a limited driving privilege but it got rid of that 45-day hold and as you might imagine that was a big deal because if the day you were convicted you're one having someone either drive you home or you're taking an uber and two you were not able to drive for 45 days that was a big deal people would you know say i have to get to work i have to get to the grocery store i have to get my kids to school and getting rid of that 45-day hold was a huge change to the law that that took into consideration people um uh, even though they may have made a mistake and they were found guilty or pleaded guilty they were allowed to immediately drive from the courthouse and maintain their life and their livelihood and their family
1: Yeah, and that's one of the things, like even though these people have made a mistake, that is, at the end of the day, I've always felt from a personal philosophy that one of the points of the law isn't necessarily to punish, but to raise all the boats when we can, to do what's best for everyone. And I think we can agree that what's best for everyone is rarely to take someone's livelihood away.
2: Yeah. And, and that's just something that with the um, the subcommittee and other professionals that work in the field, I think it's fair to say that no one likes impaired driving. I mean, it's not like sure. defense lawyers stand up and say, yeah, I'm a fan of impaired driving. It's great. No, it's not. Uh, from a defense lawyer's perspective, we're, we're interested in the fair application uh, of the law to individuals, to people who, you know, good people who make bad mistakes. Sure. Okay, where the prosecutors have a job and a role to um, without partiality, um, prosecute people who they believe have, have broken the law and administer and through the courts, you know, an appropriate sanction or, or remedy. Uh, so this was not a point that was hotly disputed. I mean, um, the, the question was, is what was the appropriate penalty um, for a conviction? And, and I think it, I'd hasten to add that um, people assume, well, what if you hurt somebody or what if you had a child in a car? The limited driving privilege in any instance, whether it's an ignition or lock or anything, only applies to levels three, four, and five uh, DWIs, and there's six levels of impaired driving convictions in North Carolina. So if you have any of the grossly aggravating factor, and there's a, there's a bunch of them, I break them down to four, but uh, basically if you uh, had a prior DWI within a statutory period, uh, if your license was revoked at the time due to some other driving while impaired, uh, if you were in a wreck where there was a resultant serious bodily injury or if there was a child in the car under the age of 18, so those big four gross aggravating factors, um, you're not going to get – you're not eligible for a limited driving privilege. So it applies to people in in many instances who have had um, very little involvement with the court system. In fact, on the previous governor's task force, and this is something that I've been practicing for a long time and didn't realize this. I'd made certain assumptions, anecdotal assumptions, but um, – uh, the percentage of people who get a drive-on pair to get recharged, they think, is very, very, very low. You, it, it touches, it's like the ER room. DWI charges are like the ER room of society. It touches all um, backgrounds, socioeconomic statuses, um, whatever you do for a living um, across the board. And so most people, other than a minor speeding ticket, this will be the most serious level of involvement in the legal system that they've ever seen in their life. And so... Yes, very much so that, it, you know, you can make a mistake and, 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 um, and, and it's, it's admittedly a big one. And 0.15 is not just a minor level of impairment, it, it, there, there also were further studies that showed the increased incidence of um, alcohol-related um, injuries, accidents, and fatalities, the higher the number got up. And so, that's where the logic was from a policy standpoint, why are we going 0.16? Okay, because there, there is a bell curve. So if you go on the XY axis, the higher the number someone has at the time, at a relevant time after driving, the higher incidence there was or po- possibility, if there was, of um, being in a serious accident where either you or someone else could be, in, you know, substantially injured or even killed, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I had a question about the second one as well, where you said that there it had eliminated some times and hour restrictions that had applied previously. Are there still times when someone can or cannot drive? Do they have to follow a certain path? You know, can they always drive home? How's that work?
2: That's a great question with a very complicated answer. So I will, again, of course, put the <laughs> asterisk here. I'm, I'm relatively comfortable saying that uh, for privileges applied for um, from December 1st on, that 45-day hold is, is less problematic. Um, but I'll also add that um, the, the court, the judge, the person that sentences you, whether it's in district court or sphere court, always possesses a certain amount of discretion about whether to grant a limited driving privilege. So there's the first you know, hur- hurdle, if you will, is under the law of North Carolina, is this person eligible? And so some people think, well, the judge gave me the privilege. Um, Actually, if a judge signs off on a privilege where the person was not otherwise eligible, DMB sends them a letter. Actually, I think it may be the attorney general's office. I don't remember. But someone sends someone a letter and says, that wasn't a good privilege. We're not going to acknowledge it. But so in addition to having to meet the certain basic requirements, you always have to be subject to the judge's discretion. And there are some judges that, uh, and they're still allowed to do this even under new law, they can limit your direction of travel, your hours, things like that. Saying, "Well, I, if you work at, um, I use a Charlotte company, you work at Lance Corporation, and you live up in Huntersville. Well, you're going to come out of I, you know, South Boulevard. You're going to catch 485 to I-77 North. Um, you're allowed to drive these certain times, and and you know, they approximate the time of travel and get you there and get you home. Um, and and the law." now has allowed as i understand and it's going to be a few months before the full effect of some of these other provisions go into to effect so kind of depending on when you're listening to this podcast i would as i say in any case you know if your case facts and patterns um, fact pattern may be different at the time you listen to it and there you know there's a few few of us kind of kind of shake, scratching our heads going well we're quite not quite sure exactly how this this language is going to apply but there will eventually be um the ability to drive um, in what we call non-standard hours. Non-standard hours are generally thought of as Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. So if you work on Saturdays or Sundays, or if you work third shift, you would previously have to get permission to drive on si- outside the non-standard hours. So the, the purpose of the law, as I understand it, is to expand and give more discretion to the courts and, un- and take in consideration that people don't always work Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 8 p.m., either for work or household maintenance. And, as you might imagine, as part of many orders and judgments uh, for a conviction trial impaired, you're oftentimes required to get an alcohol assessment, comply with any terms, conditions, of the assessment, and do community service. Well, that, those are kind of hard to do to file a court order if you're subject to a 45-day hold or if you cannot drive during certain times to get there. Um, so it's, it's a balancing process of keeping keep people at work, let them get their groceries, um, take care of their family, their job, and then also do these additional... You know, addendum uh, are things that are required per, per the statute and in court's judgment. So, community service, 24 hours, whatever, whatever is issued.
1: Now, moving on to number three, you said there was changes to the law that required the ignition interlock device to be in every vehicle a person owns in the household. And that had, that had been the case. So is the case now that it only has to be in one vehicle if you own multiple vehicles? How is it working?
2: Right, right. And that's, again, something that really, it just kind of makes sense. I understand, and I think everyone understood the logic, if you have vehicles register your name and therefore you have access to them, the legislature wanted to make sure that if you were going to be allowed to drive and you had access to vehicles that any vehicle you can drive a, as a prophylactic measure, if you will, make sure you got an ignition interlock device. And um, uh, now it's just to, you designate a vehicle. Meaning, like in my family, we have three cars. I, well, they're, they're in and my wife's in my name. They may be just in her name, <laughs> I don't remember, honestly, but I have access to three cars and sure. I tend to drive one. My wife tends to drive another one and my daughter, um, well, she's off in college. She she drives the the third one. Um, and what the what the law says now is you, you don't have to put the ignition interlock device on every one of the those three vehicles. You just put it on the one that you drive. Bill, um, that that uh, that does help quite a bit because you're not going to be spending the monthly fee of in, in each in each vehicle. And plus, you know, you got to go up there every other month, every sixty days or so, and they plug it in and they do a datum dump. And then the third is you're not subjecting to the other family members to having to blow uh, in in the thing. So, you know, if I had ignition interlock requirement, my wife's not going to have to drive and blow into the machine every time um, to start her car or my daughter in her car. Similarly, um, if it's... You, you might imagine, I mean, the, the interlock device can't really tell who's blowing. Okay, so if I'm not allowed having... In any amount of alcohol in my system, if I'm an operator motor vehicle subject to an ignition interlock, limited driving privilege, that doesn't necessarily under law apply to my wife. But so if she had a glass of wine and tried to start the car and then get a positive reading, it would be attributed to me. So this was a measure, I think, as I, as I understand it from my perspective, it was to limit the cost, to limit the, the you know, if you have a a bunch of different cars and you're installing all these different vehicles, they, it, limit, it would limit the amount of time it takes to do down dumps. It doesn't subject the other family members to the blows. And it actually, um, uh, to some way, modulates any defenses to saying, oh, it wasn't me driving, it was my 18-year-old daughter or my, you know, my wife that was driving the vehicle. It, it's, not, it's not absolute. I mean, obviously, my wife can still drive my car. She could still have a glass of wine uh, and, and have a positive uh, reading in violation uh, of the law. Um, but that was that. That's a big deal um, from a financial standpoint. Which leads into the other point is that the cost of these things um, they're not inexpensive. I mean, it's not break the bank for many people, but for some it is. And so the fourth point was is there is a, a means test, and if you qualify under, I won't go into detail, but there are four or five different ways that if you qualify um, um, as otherwise, uh, you know, potentially in, indigent or subject, you know, having having lesser ability to pay. Uh, the, the providers, and there are three providers in North Carolina, um, there's uh, Monotech, Smart Start, and AlcoLock, um, uh, that um, they have to, you know, they have to reduce the fee. Um, and um, so that people say, well, I'm, I'm you know, I just, I, I, I just don't make that kind of money in order to afford it. I owe child support or something else like that. The law acknowledged that. So, because sometimes people would drive without the installation saying, I just could not afford it. And so, once again, um, it took away, in, in a way, a defense against having the device installed in your car. The point is, is we really want people to get these things installed in the car, and we don't want to give them reasons not to have it installed in that particular vehicle.
1: Yeah, that, and that's something that, that really resonates with me, having been a criminal defense attorney, is when you see the law come down harder on people who don't have the means as opposed to someone who, who does – they get in trouble for the same thing, but the punishment is infinitely more severe for somebody who is, is indigent. And, mm-hmm. and that, that's really hard to swallow when you see that happen.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we've done that more from a policy perspective. Again, we've done that as well with driving while license revoked. Now, back when I started practicing law, back in 1992, we actually had a law in the book called driving while license permanently revoked. And um, it wasn't terribly difficult to get to a permanent revocation. Uh, Judge Daphne Kren, Kentrell used to um, call it getting hooked by the horn. She'd hold her, you know, two fingers up like the Texas Longhorns hmm. and say, "You know, this is what happens. You get a ticket, you don't pay it. And then it, it, it goes through a certain period of time, and then D sends a notice, and then they get, you know, they're going to work. They get pulled over for another driving license revoked. They plead guilty to that. and Then it adds additional period of suspension and revocation. Well, driving license permanently revoked had a 30 day mandatory act of jail time. Okay, that, that blows people away, younger practitioners, when they hear that it was 30 days active, which is the same level as a level one DWI. If you have a child in your car, the front of the line, uh, DWI, not aggravated LORES law, but level one. Um, and, and even within the last few years, we now have bifurcated driving while license revoked, where we have one level of driving while license revoked, what we call an impaired revocation. Meaning if you're revoked due to driving while impaired, it's a deal. Where if it's driving a license vote due to non-payment of tickets um, or fair to pay fines and costs, it's a lower level DWI under law and the punishments. The, the logic of this was though that we were going to try to get people driving legally, and um, and and part of the the cost is it remains a problem. Um, and if you're if you don't have to be indigent, it, these these things add up. I mean, you've got a court cost, you got a fine, you got community service fees. I mean, commun- in order to do the community service, there's a $250 fee. So you pay the community service board agency to do the community service. There's a DWI fee of $100. Um, I could be wrong on this, but my recollection of the court cost when I started were $35. Okay, so we got a speed ticket, you paid $35. It's now almost $200. Okay, and so an average DWI um, judgment on a first offense DWI, you know, you take the 190, whatever it is, and then the DWI fee, that's 290, plus the community service fees 250. And then you hit a fine on top of that, which courts are given a fair amount of discretion. And ain't hard to get to $1,000 or more. And some people say, oh, yeah, that's that's the penalty or cost. That's, I'm, not ta- I'm just talking about court costs and community service fees. I don't even talk about your increased insurance premiums, which is going to be through the roof. Um, they're going to put you in the high-risk group called the reinsurance facility and they're going to give you liability coverage only and they're not going to cover your car just anyone else that you may hit and i and and i those costs add up and to throw on an ignition interlock device whatever it may be 75 80 100 a month it just it adds up and adds up and adds up and then what happens is people just throw their hands up and say i have to drive i'm going to drive and then they find themselves in even more difficulty so i'm with you there i I, I wish there was some committee to force the legislature to lower the co- court cost, um, or you know, if you're, if you're, you know, because this the court costs apply if you get a speed ticket, okay, and that's a, that's a whole lot of money, and um, you know, the the court system is, in my opinion, should pay for itself. Um, you know, I'm pretty fiscally conservative. That doesn't mean it's, it should be necessarily a cash cow or a cash machine for for other things. Sure, uh, within the system. Um, but I kind of I kind of digress uh, 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 there. But you're we right. We could talk about that for if, a while. Right, right. If you're making minimum wage, and you're talking about owing thousand dollars or more, plus Oof. X amount every month for ignition interlock device, plus enhanced enhanced uh, insurance premiums, um, I'm glad that we're taking consideration the financial ability. And it's not just willy nilly. I mean, there are very set. Uh, define uh, parameters under the law to take consideration when you might otherwise become eligible for this consideration on the ignition airline device.
1: Yeah. I mean, that could, for one person, that could not really even move the needle for them. For another person, that could wreck, like, a year of their life. Just just or that more. fee alone. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so, it's, uh, um, you know, it's in the same argument here of what were regressive taxes or things like that, that people who have, you know, are making minimum wage um, a, a, a even a small penalty is substantially more, I, I call it the inverse of the widow's mite. If you ever hear that old widow's mite story where someone very, very wealthy gave a generous amount of money to their their place of faith, but the the widow's mite is someone who, who really didn't have much of anything, but what she had, she gave. And it was, a, you know, her gift exceeded that of anyone else. And it's, so the inverse is true, meaning that for someone who has, you know, poverty line level. That's what we're talking about here, um, and we want to make sure that they get to work and maintain their livelihoods and their families, and are not eating ramen noodles um, for a three or four year um, period. That that was some of the logic uh, here, and um, I, it makes sense uh, to me. And it doesn't matter what party or your perspective you're on on here, because if you put your put people in a in a sense that they have no other choice or no way out, people. Um, will um, make choices which don't always comport or comply with the law. I tell people regularly, I say, I'm going to tell you, do not drive, okay? My job as an attorney is to give you my legal advice and opinion. Your job as a client is to decide whether to listen to me and follow my advice. <laughs> sure. Well,
1: we have to wrap up here in a moment, but I wanted a couple more questions before we do that. You you spoke about the wiggle room with the blood alcohol concentration and how that had been mm-hmm. revised. and Really, it sounds like that's allowing for inaccuracies in the machine with the alcohol that might be in your mouth. Like, tell me a little bit more about exactly uh, how that works. Yeah,
2: that, that's exactly what it is. It may have it can be residual mouth alcohol. It, it can also be uh, amongst the different machines to make sure that each of them have a calibration consistency, for lack of a better term. Um, I, I'll give you an example. of you know, oh, what's it? You know, you shouldn't be drinking any amount of alcohol beforehand. Well, I agree, and the manufacturers of these devices, before you get them installed, they give you a list of things not to eat or drink. Okay, and I'm not talking like obvious things like don't drink beer. I mean, they tell you don't drink beer, don't drink wine. Um, don't take NyQuil or other, um, you know, medicines that may have ethanol or ethyl alcohol. But here's a, here's a surprise. They tell you not to eat honey buns, okay, because honey buns are yeasted, um, delicious snacks <laughs> that are coated with sugar. Uh, sugar feeds on the yeast and can actually cause a level of fermentation. If you ever get a honey bun bag that's puffed up, it's because it's creating um, um, through the process of, of, uh, and I won't get too much of science here, but it creates, it can create alcohol. And so there are different foods and devices. They they used to tell you for years, don't eat Wonder Bread. Don't eat uh, or chew on certain types of gum. There are natural amounts of alcohol in certain products that may show as having consumed alcohol because it's what we call residual mouth alcohol. So by raising that figure up or at least leveling it at a um, 0.02 and for a consistency from calibration standpoint, um, those arguments go out the window as well. Like, well, because you're not going to blow necessarily a 0.02 because you've had a honey bun. So I don't want to be obtuse here. Uh, thinking of what my friends on the other side would say but if you look at it before you get device installed they they give them a list of different things and here's the other there are other safety precautions that are put in place with this device if you have a positive and it's a false positive there's a waiting period and then you you try to do it again and if you keep messing up uh they call it a lockout which means no matter how many times you blow on that machine it's going to lock you out you're not gonna be able to start your car and that's how these things work is it's one, starting your vehicle. And that's that's something I don't know if people realize. The ignition interlock device is a device that's installed in your car. It's a wand. It looks like a it's about the size of a microphone depending on the manufacturer. And it 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 just will not send the electronic signal or allow that when you click the your key or push the button, it won't let the vehicle start. It's not just at the start though. You we have things called rolling tests as well, where you drive them around and it'll give you a warning. And um, it'll want you to blow again, and they recommend you pull over to the side of the road and do it. And and it doesn't shut off your car because that'd be dangerous. Um, you, you could, if you just shut off your car in the middle of the road, you could actually cause a wreck. But it, what it does do is it makes your horn honk and flash your lights and make it real easy <laughs> for police officers <laughs> to see. Like, hey, sure, this guy's, um, sticking um, right out. Ignition light device. So um, yeah, the logic was is to allow a little bit of, of variance or or. And I, I don't want to call it wiggle room because you really shouldn't have any amount of alcohol. People should not rely upon that saying. Well, you know, we had one. Uh, My hard and firm advice is if you've had any amount of alcohol um, and and have a requirement of operating a motor vehicle subject to no consumption of alcohol, you should follow law. You should not have any amount of alcohol. But there are certain times in the... things that we can consume or drink that may have either a false high positive or a a misreading of sorts, and that's where where I'm talking about. There's a range that allows it, and that allows level of consistency um, across the board with different devices, which is a whole other conversation. So, the logic was to uh, set an established parameter as far as plus or minus factors.
1: Very good. Now, last thing I wanted to ask about is you mentioned the uh, requirement for a joint legislative oversight committee. Mm -hmm. That was going to be looking into the expansion of the ignition interlock device program. What are they looking at? Are they trying to bring that number down from 0.15 so it'll more people will fall inside needing the device?
2: Yeah, and this is where reasonable minds may differ, but the answer is uh, yes, and it may be. Um, the work of the, the the review committee was meant to not just put the pot on the stove, put the lid on, and and walk away. It, it, uh, the point of the legislation is to say, let's keep looking at this. Let's keep considering the applicability and uh, whether the intended effect of legislation is actually coming to fruition. Uh, and uh, I would also say that I think it's, it's, it's a fair assumption that, that there are certain groups that would like to see that number lowered. Okay, And we talked about the logic you know, on the X-Y graph, the, uh, the higher level of alcohol, the, the greater chances of um, you know, injury and, and alcohol-related fatalities and, and um, injuries. Um, and, and so there may be a push to lower that number. Now, it used to be 0.16, okay, and then it was lowered to 0.15, and it could be lowered to less. I've, I've actually heard some argument that it should be mandated in every requirement or every conviction of drywall impaired, even if the impairment was not related to alcohol. I have my opinions about that and the applicability of that and whether that's fair or not. But there are some who would who would have it that if you have a dry impaired due to a benzodiazepine um, or Prizlam Xanax, um, you get ignition interlock device. Um, you know that uh, I may disagree with that, but there are other that think well maybe it should be a thirteen or maybe it should be a twelve or maybe it should be a ten. Uh, everyone has their um, uh, own um, logic and feelings and. and both personal and professional uh, opinions on that. So, I, But it's going to be studied, and I think uh, that would eventually be the long-term intent in North Carolina. The question is not if people want that number to be lowered, it's will it get through and how, by how much. Sure. All right, well, we have covered a lot of ground here
1: today. I'm going to do my best to, to summarize some of the big points that I feel like I heard. Please feel free to interject on me, Bill. But it sounds like uh, number one, I think the takeaway is talk to a lawyer. This is a mm-hmm. complicated area. There's a lot going on. We we used a, a a lot of times we said now this isn't always the way it is. So there's a lot of qualifications here. So please mm-hmm. talk to a lawyer first. Second, these are, this is very big picture general stuff. We didn't have nearly enough time. Nor would you probably want to listen to us go too deep on these issues because they're complicated. Every issue is going to be very nuanced. What happens in your situation can be very different than what happens in somebody else's situation. So what, what we talked about applying here may not necessarily apply to you. So that goes back to number one, talk to a lawyer. The third one that, that I definitely heard was do not drive without a license. That is going to take your problem and exacerbate it. You've already got an issue. Now you're, you know, they've got their hooks in you already. And that is just going to create a much bigger issue for you. And then don't go assuming that that license that you have is valid. You may have heard somewhere, oh, if you wait this amount of time or or, they didn't actually take it from me, none of that. Don't assume the license that you have that you're holding is going to be valid to drive. Always check first. And I think the best way to check on that is talk to a lawyer. Did you have anything that you wanted to add there, Bill?
2: No, I think, uh, as usual, you nailed it. it. It's even for me, sometimes it's hard for me to even explain that it. it's so darn complicated. And I've been doing this now for um, a lot of years, and it's, it's an evolving law. Um, what may have applied to your case even 10 years ago or five years ago may be completely inapplicable. I regularly, one of the first questions I ask clients are, where are you from? Because the law in North Carolina is different than law in South Carolina, law in Georgia. And so what Uncle, what uncle Freddie got in south florida in 1983 you know putting penny in your mouth type of arguments um uh, uh it, it it may even if that were the case at, at the time it's it, a lot there's a lot of anecdotal beliefs or gut instincts of how the law should be versus what the law actually is um so even if you've got a plastic license in your wallet it doesn't mean you're valid uh, the drive sure um, right. i would add to people if they can um to um you know periodically you know we have a youtube channel that goes through these different devices and we do case law updates and things. But I think the strongest advice, she said, is, you know, talk to a lawyer and let them sit down and really kind of um, parse through what what your individual circumstances are.
1: All right, Bill, thank you so much for all of that. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to come back here and do some guest hosting on this podcast. For the listeners, uh, a couple of things for you. First, subscribe to the podcast. You're going to get updated when new episodes come out so you can stay on top of these things. You can also check out the YouTube channel for videos on the different breath testing devices. Bill does a very good job over there. And if you need help, go to carolinaattorneys.com. You can get Bill directly at bill at And then you can always reach the office at 704-342-HELP. Thanks a lot.
0: You've been listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for legal issues and legislation, practice tips, professionalism, and policy discussions. Want to talk to Bill Powers? Call 704-342-HELP. That's 704-342-4357. Law Talk with Bill Powers is an educational resource only. The information presented does not constitute legal advice and is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney. Every situation is unique. Therefore, you should always consult with a licensed attorney before making any legal decision.